Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Happy Monday. It's Monday, May 11th. And that means one thing that the PBS documentary Asian Americans drops tonight on PBS at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 8 again locally here on the West Coast. Super excited to watch this. It is a five hour documentary, two hours today, three hours tomorrow. Series producer Renee Tajima Pena joins us on the show today to talk about her story, her motivations that she wants, her legacy to be. You're going to hear some amazing stories you've never heard of. So please make time today, share with a friend and tomorrow to watch Asian Americans on PBS. And if you're watching it, join the conversation on Twitter and on Instagram, hashtag AsianMPBS, tag us, tag Renee. So excited to share this conversation and even more excited to watch our stories unfold from our perspective told by us so that we can understand where we come from and hopefully it will help others understand where we come from as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Without further ado, my conversation with Renee Tajima Pena. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe and hope you're staying healthy and happy. We're in the middle of May, uh, continuing to celebrate Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And so from wherever you're listening to this or watching this, uh, we hope you we wish you all the health and happiness in the world. As I mentioned, May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and given all that we're going through with COVID-19 related health concerns and the racism, what better time for us to reflect not just on who we are today, but where we come from. So today, when you're listening to the show, uh, tonight actually on May 11th and tomorrow on May 12th, uh, PBS is releasing a documentary aptly named Asian Americans. It could not have come at a better time, for us to share our stories from our perspectives. And I am so, so, so excited to have Renee Tajima Pena here, who is the producer of the show and the documentary. If that name is not familiar to you, her work certainly has. Uh, she's been creating amazing documentaries since the 80s and have been bringing to us and sharing our stories. Um, so as somebody who is just getting started on sharing the Asian American story with our audience, um, Renee, Thank you so much for all that you've done and you continue to do, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. And I'm the series producer of Asian Americans because we had several episode producers, Leo Chang, Grace Lee, and Gita Gamber. Awesome. Thank, thank you. Yeah, it's, I think, which is actually really telling of our community, right? No one person owns a narrative. No, no it's a co person. collaboration, definitely. Absolutely. It's something that I think I continue to struggle and is always top of mind for me as I pick and choose whose story gets to be on the show and who's, who do I ask to be on the show alongside me is we're not a monolith. And no matter how many times other people try to box us into one thing, uh, the beauty of our experience is, is that it is so, so, so diverse. If you're listening to this, hope you're excited to watch the documentary as all of us are. Um, Renee, I want to start getting to know you a little bit of mm -hmm. your earlier background. Um, You've been producing and creating films and documentaries for the majority of your adult life. But tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, how your family became Asian American, and what was America like back then? And how did you view yourself as you fit into the American uh, picture? Well, my family's been here for a long, long time. My grandparents came in the early 1900s. I have one grandfather who first cut sugar cane in 
Hawaii. He moved there and or immigrated in 1902. 1906, he took a steamer from Hawaii to San Francisco, got there in April of 1906. Um, as soon as he stepped on shore, he got chased down by these racist merchant marines. So he literally just, you know, fled from town that day. As it turns out, the next day was the San Francisco earthquake. So I think those racist yahoos actually might have saved his life. Um, my other, and then my grandmother, who he married, was a picture bride from Japan. My other grandfather was actually came to study theology at Yale. He had a much different migration pattern. Um, my grandparents had met in Sunday school in Japan. They left because of persecution of Christians there. And he came in the early 1900s also. So we, we've been here a long time. I'm third generation Japanese American. And my, you know, like many Japanese American families, many of Sansei, third generation of my, um, my generation, our story goes back not only to the early 1900s, but, you know, the, I don't want to call it a highlight, but the major turning point of our story was World War II. Right. Um, my whole family was either incarcerated in concentration camps for Japanese Americans, or the, my dad and my uncles were in the U.S. military. You know, that irony of that failure of democracy at that time. Um, so they were, you know, they were in camp. I mean, different camps. And after the war, my branch of family moved to Chicago, as a lot of Japanese Americans did, because, you know, a lot of people didn't feel that they were welcome back where they were originally from. And in my case, both, actually, my, um, my Christian grandfather, they, they started in Salt Lake City, and then they went to Los Angeles, and then my, um, other, my mother's family, came they just lived in lived in Los Angeles as well, so that's that's how they met. Mm. But um yeah, we ended up in Chicago where I was born and lived there for eight years in uh you know partly in the in the north northern neighbor the um what do you call it? North side north side neighborhood <laughs> around Wrigley Field. Mm. And a lot of Japanese Americans lived there. You know, my whole family rabid Cubs fans. And um, then when I was eight, we moved to the Los Angeles area. So I really grew up in Los Angeles. And, and as you were growing up, um, and, and thank you for sharing that. I, I think with each guest that I share time with, really understanding how the immigration or the refugee story came about and how we all ended up somehow setting foot on this earth that now we're, we call home. Um, I, it's 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 really telling and and really interesting to hear all that. What were you hoping to be when you were growing up? You hear these stories, obviously, of your family members being treated differently in America. Um, the dichotomy of we'll imprison you, but also fight for us. Um, we've hear that story often, and part of it now even exists today. What did you hope to be? What did your parents pressure you to be? If they if there was any family pressure to do or be something, did you? have any limitations on yourself as far as what a ceiling was or what did you want to be? Not from my family. I mean, my parents were, you know, encouraged me to be anything I wanted. I mean, my dad was, you know, he wanted me to get a, 
and this was really unusual back in the 60s and 70s for a daughter. He wanted me to get a combination business and law degree and, oh. you know, sit on the Supreme Court someday. And, and my grandfather, uh, my maternal grandparents actually lived with us. And my grandfather used to do my chores because he said, no, you should just study and have fun. And, you know, I was the youngest daughter, but he, I mean, he wasn't like a raving feminist or anything. You know, he had lived his life. Uh, I don't think he ever went to college. He was, um, you know, he cut cane. Then he, when he moved to Los Angeles, he was a janitor and a so-called stock boy or and house boy, they would call him, even when he was like a, a uh, grown man with five right. kids, considered a boy. Right. Um, but, you know, so I was really encouraged within my family. Now, within the culture, no. Yeah, I mean, you know, the glass ceiling was, I mean, it was like bulletproof glass ceiling. So, but, but I grew up during a time of social turmoil. You know, it was the 60s and the 70s. And the growth of the Asian American movement. I had old, older siblings who were involved um, in my community. You know, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of debate about race and integration and ethnic studies. And I think I led my first walkout when I was like 10 years old. Wow. Um, so I was pretty politicized very early. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was 10. I mean, because I went, I was grew up in a very integrated um, community, and you know everybody, even kids, were talking about what was going on in the world. So I had a Asian American consciousness, like from a very, very early age. And when I went to high school, you know, we went on strike for ethnic studies and for hiring teachers of color, and um, we used to because. You know, you would never learn about Asian American history in textbooks or, I mean, it was just completely invisible and erased. So we would just gather anything we can find. Now I realize it was probably materials from Berkeley or San Francisco State or UCLA, the, you know, young Asian American student activists who were demanding ethnic studies at those places. And we would mimeograph back in those days. There's no Xeroxing or whatever. So no internet, of course. <laughs> so we mimeograph, you know, the histories of the Chinese American, the Chinese immigrant railroad workers, the Japanese American concentration camps, um, you know, Filipino laborers and farm workers. And we used to actually get together after school and just teach ourselves Asian wow. American history as, you know, we were 14, 15 years old at that time, but we were really hungry to know who we were. That's awesome and inspiring. Um, I think today in the era of everything at your fingertips, mm -hmm. we almost should have fewer excuses for us and our children to learn about history because the information is there. Yet, I feel that this is perhaps an unfair judgment on the entire generation, but we're not doing as much as we can to learn about our people that somehow for a number of different reasons. Um, but the fact that you sought that out when the information was not so readily available and created a community to share that at such an early age, Renee, that is, that is really, really inspiring to hear. Oh, um, we were all hungry. To know who we were. 
you know, because we, we knew that our, our identity was erased. Sure. I mean, we didn't see ourselves reflected in the culture. You look on the screen, you didn't, I mean, the only Asian we would see on screen is like Hop Singh or, you know, some simpering, like (laughs) so-called coolie or, you know, the dragon ladies or the geisha girls. I mean, or half the time white actors in yellow. Oh yeah. So that's a whole, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Still infuriating today. Mm -hmm. Um, and you ended up at school in Boston at Harvard, yes. um, which is not the most diverse place in the world. How, how was that cultural difference for you as you went there oh, and how did you end yeah. up studying Asian studies? Well, it was huge because, I mean, from my high school, nobody had gone to an Ivy League in like maybe 10 years because it was a very fast changing school district because of um, just the demographic change. There's a lot of white flight because there is uh, busing for integration. So, um, you know, there we were like maybe almost half students of color. Um, but anyway, yeah, not nobody was going to Harvard or any of the Ivies. And I landed there. Um, I wanted to you know, very naively, I declared Asian American studies on my application. I mean, there's still no Asian American studies at Harvard after almost 50 years of fighting for it. And um, I managed to kind of cobble together sociology and East Asian studies to make Asian American studies. And, you know, it's like I had to really teach myself in a lot of ways. But um but as soon as I got there for student orientation, you know, we were already like staging protests because Asian Americans were denied entry to the minority orientation event. And um, I mean, we actually got a lot of support from other students of color that, yes, you know, we should we're an underrepresented group. We should be there. So, you know, we were staging like walkouts and you know, surrounding the dean's office, like even before school started. Um, and there were very few Asian Americans at that time because, you know, Asian Americans for many years were really denied entry to right. higher education. I mean, people think now it's like, oh, yeah, you just, you know, get good grades, grades and <laughs> you get high SAT scores, you're going to get into schools and there's no racial right. kind of um, component to it. But, oh, but that's not true you know it's um and especially at that time you know asian americans were really denied access to those schools and and you know and also i remember like one reason i never believed in the sats it's you know the argument that it's culturally um kind of culturally skewed is i remember my sats like the vocabulary one word was um, claptrap. And I wrote like, you know, uh, wanton woman or something. Like claptrap, trap. who uses that word? I mean, maybe somebody at Andover or Harvard Westlake or whatever, but not in my school. Nobody said claptrap. You think <laughs> claptrap, you think somebody has gonorrhea or something like that. So anyway, that's my rant. Uh I think that is awesome, Renee, because I, it, man, because we, we think about the people who've blazed trails 
for us, before us. And, you know, I'm, I'm 36. So I walked in the clear paths that you and your, your uh, contemporaries blazed for us. Right. And we don't necessarily take the time to think about what helped us get there. Right. So um, where I went to undergrad at USC, the Asian Pacific student, anything only exists of sit-ins and protest by people. Now I'm lucky to call my personal mentors because they believed in it. And especially now when we hear stories of people just unwilling to even just stay home because it's uncomfortable and to hear stories and to watch things that depict people making actual sacrifice and willing to put their standing as a student, perhaps lives and even more on the line for, for people like me and my kids that you didn't even know existed. I, I think that is something that we can just take some time to introspect and really learn from. Well, in, in actually in the series in Asian Americans in episode four, one of the stories we tell is the San Francisco State strike for ethnic studies. And you talk about people putting their lives on the line, you know, getting arrested, getting yeah. beaten. Um, and they won. They won the first school of ethnic studies in the United States after the longest campus strike in the history of the United States. And, you know, Asian Americans were right there at the center of the strike. And we talked to a lot of those strikers. And then we talked to, like, Viet Thanh Nguyen, who was mm -hmm. the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist who wrote Refugee and the Sympathizer. And he went to UC Berkeley, you know, a couple of decades after that strike. That strike was in 1968, mm -hmm. 1969. And he took classes from Ron Takaki and you know, professors who had been strikers themselves when they were in college. And he said that's when he, you know, he really realized, I mean, he, he said he, he arrived here as a Vietnamese refugee and he really became an Asian American because of the consciousness um, he got from his professors. And, and yeah, so he said it was like just, you know, just really eye-opening to find out uh, Asian American history and the Asian American story. And so we hope to do that for new generations. What I find fascinating about Asian America, um, my family came here in 1992, well after many of the stories that are on the documentary. And well, and, and so there are s multiple tracks of Asian American immigration patterns, obviously. And one of the things that I think is, um, I, I hate to use the word unfortunate, but um, is that most of the newer, and that's just, this was even still 28 years ago, but those of us and our families who came under different circumstances on our own after sort of these movements had happened, my parents had no way to learn about these things. They were busy trying to survive and they were in their own cultural bubbles within communities and churches and whatnot. So that topic of we didn't even get a chance to be exposed to these things because our parents didn't even know that these things existed. And so we were taught to, and, and this is collective as a generation, I think we were then taught to assimilate instead, to try to mimic white culture, to try to fit in and to be accepted rather than building upon the struggles and the fight that others had come before us to say that we belong and that we have a rightful place in the society. Um, and, and so you're right. I think, you know, one documentary does not change an entire generation's opinion about anything, but I think there's so much opportunity for us to 
get behind this and other storytelling things to just highlight people that we didn't even know existed and to be proud of it. Well, you know, what we, one thing we do is, um, it's interesting you bring that up in coming, your family coming from Korea in 1992. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the stories is, you know, LA 92, the Los mm -hmm. Angeles rebellion. And, um, we talked to a, he's actually a, a filmmaker or he was a filmmaker. He now works for his family, Alex Ko. He mm -hmm. went to USC as well. He went to USC, um, film school. And his family had a video store in Koreatown. And, you know, the store, of course, was burnt down. But um, so he and other, Jeff Chang, who's a writer, Angela Oh, who's a uh, lawyer and Korean-American community activist, Helen Zia, who was like a leader of the um, Vincent Shin uh, Campaign for Justice. And they talk in a very reflective way about how LA-92 was a real reckoning right. for Asian Americans. Because for me or Helen, um, for Jeff, you know, we had been, and at, at, as well as Angela, we had all been, um, you know, we came of age during the civil rights movement and the black movements for equality. Yeah. And so we knew, and this is one thing we have really made sure to trace in the series, the debt that Asian Americans owe to the, the black movement. Um, you know, Asian Americans, my family lived in segregated neighborhoods because Asian Americans also, you know, faced redlining, restrictive covenants where, you know, neighborhoods where you had to be white to live there, um, anti-miscegenation laws. Asian Americans in many states could not marry, intermarry with whites. Um, Asian Americans also with the segregated schools faced, you know, exclusion and in uh, jobs and of course exclusion in race-based immigration laws right. i mean asian americans were actually the first so-called undocumented immigrants right. um, when the chinese exclusion act was enacted it was the first time a group of people were denied banned entry into the united states simply because of their race Right. And um, and my grandparents lived here for over 50 years before they were even allowed to apply to become naturalized citizens. They were considered aliens ineligible for citizenship because right. of race-based laws. But so we had grown up with that. And but then we realized that, you know, Asian Americans who had been a part of this Asian American movement really realized that, you know, we have have to build our ties with immigrant communities and also find a way to, um, you know, so that other, other Asian Americans, you know, newer communities know about how our livelihood, our well-being, our freedoms are really tied to other communities of color right. that, you know, without that kind of solidarity, um, without the, that leadership, in um, the civil rights movement, you know, we, we, we just wouldn't have the freedoms we have. Yeah. And I mean, for me personally, I, we came in January of 92. So we were, we moved here. Everything is new. Wow, eight years bad old, timing. And then, yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. April, boom. Right. And we, you know, yeah. we, we lived in, we lived in the suburb of LA in, in Fullerton. So we weren't directly in it, but you know, unfortunately that just what was taught um, that event, unfortunately uh, painted, 
and instilled in me a lot of negative emotions towards black people and, you know, people of darker color uh, because my parents didn't understand and Koreans who lived in suburbs didn't understand. They didn't want to understand um, in a desire for survival. They were just customers of their businesses or people. They, you know, th there was really no, um, I, I guess I, I like to think that in prioritizing survival and getting, you know, to be here, um, those things were not, those things were, they didn't have the luxury of pursuing, you know, cultural understanding and then having discussions and conversations. So, you know, for, for me, it, it took me a very long time. I ended up going to high school in New York City, which is an eye-opening, you know, experience of diversity and, and mixture and having different friends and then really learning about other people. Um, I didn't have a single black or black friend until high school, which is, you know, well after I moved here, um, just because there weren't that many, probably if at all, in, in where I grew up. So um, I think just to let my generation and younger know even as a teaser, because obviously it's impossible to tell all the stories and a, you know, even if it's a five part documentary, all the different stories to get them interested, to pique their interest, to go and find the answers for themselves. So since Harvard, you have spent the majority of your career storytelling, mm -hmm. not all Asian American stories, obviously, but um, mainly stories that may otherwise not have been told. Um, one of the first major, uh, projects that you worked on was Who Killed Vincent Chin, which mm -hmm. chronicles uh, the murder of Vincent Chin in Detroit. Um, un, un, you know, we Perhaps uh, a bit timely right now is as we mourn the loss of Ahmad Arbery, who was a black man in Georgia who was killed um, for just for the crime of looking the way he was. Um, share with us what motivated you to get involved with that project, um, which um, you are widely recognized for and um, an important story to tell. Well, I was outraged. Vincent Chin was killed in 1982. He was Chinese American, young guy, he's just about to be married. And this was in Detroit during, and very similar to today, it was during an era of crisis. So there was a deep, deep auto recession in Detroit. Um, and Japanese car imports were blamed, which was actually, you know, detracting attention from the real roots of the problem in that U.S. car manufacturers were just not producing fuel efficient cars. This was after the oil crisis. People did not want to drive gas guzzlers. So they were buying Toyotas and Mazdas and, you know, and they were buying small Japanese fuel efficient cars. Um, but Japanese cars were blamed, and by extension, Japanese were blamed. And because, you know, a lot of Americans can't tell us apart, all, you know, anybody who they thought remotely looked Japanese were had a target on their back. And um, so the night of his bachelor party, Vincent had this altercation with these two white auto workers, and by the end of the night, they had hunted him down and beat his brains out with a baseball bat and killed him. Nine months later, they pled guilty to manslaughter, and they were given a sentence of $3,000 fine and three years probation. They never served a day in jail. You know, somebody was saying it's like paying off your car payments. You know, you got three years to pay off your $3,000 car payment. And that's what his, his life was, was worth. So it sparked this incredible nationwide pan-Asian-American movement 
for justice, which and supported by, you know, people of all stripes and, and races. I mean, in the we revisit that story in the series and, you know, there's a clip of Jesse Jackson uh, speaking alongside Willie Chin, Vincent's mother, and demanding justice. Um, the Rainbow Coalition at that time, it was uh, Jesse Jackson led a group that was a multiracial group. A lot of Asian Americans who had been involved in the Asian American movement and community were a part of the Rainbow Coalition. Um, but so the, the people are talking about Vincent Chin a lot now because of, you know, the scapegoating then and the scapegoating today, being the president calling coronavirus, the Chinese virus, you know, other politicians like senators like Tom Cotton, you know, they pick that up. And if they don't call it the Chinese virus, they, they're calling it the Kung flu. So it, again, it puts a target on the back of Asian Americans. Um, but to me, it's also the, the caution of like reviving the memory of Vincent Chin is that, you know, you, you mentioned Ahmad Aubrey and black and brown people are, you know, particularly African Americans are those, they have Vincent Chin's like on a daily basis. Um, you know, racial violence directed on a daily basis. So for Asian Americans, that's really got to be our fight. And also other communities of color are just getting slammed by health inequalities. I mean, the, the disproportionate rate of COVID diagnoses and also deaths, it's just, you know, it's outrageous. But, um, what I've seen in the, you know, the Asian American community is, People first, like, really standing up in, in response to the whole Chinese virus kind of um, racism and anti-Asian hate. And then, you know, people are, I mean, just recently, you know, this Asian Americans seem to be talking more about, look, we've got to stand beside others' communities of color, more about that than even, you know, what's happening to us, which I think is so, so important. And I think that's how we're going to move forward. Um, just attacking, you know, racism at its roots. Right. There's no other way. You no, can't. Yeah. You, you can't be an anti-racism activist and only stand up when the thing applies to yeah. you. Yeah, justice does not mean just us. Correct. A um, lot of religious freedom activists out there only defending one religion. Yes. You can't. You can't do that, right? And I, yeah. you know, um, I, I've been really, really heartwarmed and inspired. There's so much more work to do, but by so many fellow Asian American friends in the media space and elsewhere, um, doing our runs, talking about it publicly, calling out friends who are saying nonsense, right? Because it's not, this is not the oppression Olympics. This is yeah, not a yeah. zero sum game. Um, if one of her hurts, everybody hurts. And as, as unfortunate and as infuriating as reading those stories are and and she's even to see the video of it right yeah, um yeah. I mean, we, we talked about the 92 riots that started because rodney king was beaten made fun of ridiculed and then they walked so 29 years later what the hell's changed america really hasn't changed from justice being prioritized even in the era of body cams and more disclosure so you know it's 
not everybody, not every police is bad, not every, you know, uh, whatever group of people is evil. But until we collectively stand up and say, we're not going to take it anymore, we cannot divide lines and say, well, that person doesn't look like me, so I'm not going to fight for them. Because when we need them to stand next to us, will they be there too? There's been a real hate has been unleashed in the past few years. And I think it's no coincidence that you see, you know, so much anti-blackness, you know, the targeting of Asians. I mean, the anti-Semitic kind of violence and rhetoric, you know, synagogues getting shot up. Yeah. Um, you know, it has the same roots. It has the same roots. So we just have to stand together to defeat that. It's, um, you can't, I, I mean, I've used this analogy. I don't know if it's a good one or not, but you know, if you have two tumors, you can't just take out one and then leave the other because it's the cancer that you have to right. go after nice. because the cancer afflicts the whole body. I mean, even racists should know that the cancer <laughs> afflicts the whole body politic. Um, sure. You know, the fact that, like, Latino um, meatpacking workers are not get, they don't get, you know, protective equipment. They're, you know, underpaid and, you know, have terrible working conditions. Well, it doesn't only affect them. You know, now if I go to Costco, I can only buy three portions of meat because, you know, the meatpacking plants have been shut down because of the way workers have been treated. So it, 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 even in a selfish way, you know, we've got to stand up with each other. It, it's yeah, it's it's funny because the the case for diversity, the case for equal rights and justice, makes sense not only as a human perspective, but come on, even if you're a racist but you love money, this actually makes more yeah, financial yeah, sense for yeah, you, right? Yes, so like, yeah. I mean, I hope that's not the reason why, but even if you're a everybody hating pure capitalist money pig, you'll yeah. make more money by being nice to the rest of us. Yeah, and and, and so. I, I don't get it. So it, it, then it begs the question, how badly do you hate us and will not want to see us succeed or be included that you are going to go against actual financial benefit for you to stay status quo, which is mind boggling to me? Yeah. I mean, that's the virulence of racism. <laughs> for that uh, documentary, we were just talking about um, Who Killed Vincent Chin, you were uh, Oscar nominated, mm-hmm. which is a Big, big, big deal. And obviously, um, the Oscar talk in Asian America this year was big. Um, oh, yeah. We, we, were, we were beginning to feel really proud and happy about being Asian until coronavirus happened two weeks yes. later. <laughs> uh, yeah, 2020 was going to be our year. I mean, we had a presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. The second, everybody thinks he's the first, but Patsy Mink, who's another story in the series, yeah. Patsy Mink ran for president in 1972. Um, she was the first woman of color elected to co- Congress. Um, but yeah, it was going to be our year. You know, we had all these great movies. We had Parasite is a Korean movie, but we claim Parasite yeah. as our own. <laughs> we had The Farewell and, you know, Always Be My Maybe on Netflix and Fresh Off the Boat and Master yeah. of None. And even there, like Mindy Kaling now has. A, a new series. I mean, it was going to be just everybody was going to talk about Asian Americans, That's and everybody is talking about Asian Americans, but for all the wrong reasons. Well, I, I'd like to think the year is not over. Uh, there, there, there's some silver lining. Uh, 
Korea baseball is on ESPN. It's about yeah. the only live sport that's on right now. So, um, and and so I, I think one of the what I am most hopeful for um, amidst all this negativity and, and craziness that we're going through individually and collectively is a sense of belonging and a sense of pride, a very positive pride that doesn't exclude others but brings us along um, for the ride. The documentary uh, we're really really excited to talk about. Um, how did the idea come about? Who was involved in the initial discussions, and and how did larger institutions like PBS get involved in telling our story? Well, there's been in the Asian American filmmaking community, we've wanted to make a series like this for decades, and even I think around 25 years ago, I wrote a treatment for a series on Asian Americans. Um, Lonnie Ding, who we consider the godmother of Asian American documentary, many years ago started a series, Ancestors in America. She was never able to finish it. Um, she was the, a mentor, inspiration to a lot of us. So we really feel like we're finishing Lonnie's work with this series. But um, so there are different attempts by different filmmakers. We can never get it off the ground. And about seven years ago, Wida approached me and the Center for Asian American Media and said, you know, they had done the Jewish Americans and the Italian Americans and the Latino Americans. And they said, well, do you want to do the Asian Americans? And we said, oh, yeah, you know, we've been waiting to do this for a long time. So we collaborated um, to you know, to mount the series. It took us a while to wrote the treatments. Raising money, of course, always takes a long time. And we want to put together a team of Asian American filmmakers um, so it can be from an Asian American perspective. So we didn't, we weren't greenlit until 2018 and it took us about a year and a half to, which was fast for five hours of, of films, but it took us about a year and a half and we, we had like just a really fantastic team of um, you know, filmmakers, archivists, researchers, it was really, we were able to train like also a, a new generation of Asian American filmmakers who worked with us. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was terrific. Take us to the creation room or just the ideation process where you look at creating a five hour documentary about us. And we always say in the community, we are not a monolith. There are infinite storylines. How do you even begin to list the ones that should be told and then pare it down to what fits in the time frame? Well, the first thing is I knew it could never be. I mean, it's not a book. It's not a textbook. It's television. So, And because it's television and we want to reach beyond the choir, we wanted Asian Americans and non-Asian Americans to see it. It had to be engaging um, to to a general audience. So, you know, very early on, I decided, well, let's tell this history through stories of people, personal lives, because everybody can, you know, look at somebody's life and say, hey, you know, I recognize that person. Um, so that was the first decision. Also, I didn't want to start at the beginning of time, which happens with some of these histories. It's like, you know, when did the first Asian American come here? I didn't want to have like a, you know, have to go in museums and film panning across <laughs> paintings. 
So for the most part, you know, the stories start when there are photos, images, and sometimes even footage. And there, Matthew Brady was taking pictures like during the Civil War. So there, there are photographs that go back to the 1800s. Um, and I also wanted to have people on camera who had some connection to the history. Um, even our scholars actually have a personal connection, like Gordon Chang and um, Erica Lee. You know, their, their families came here in the 1800s. But we also found, you know, people from the earlier period, we found descendants of, um, for example, our first story, and people are always really surprised, is actually a Filipino story. It's a story of Antero Cabrera, who was a young boy, um, brought from the Philippines, from the Bontoc region, as how well, he must have been 11 or 12 years old. And he was brought with a thousand other Filipinos to be displayed in a human zoo at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. And um, we found his his granddaughter, who lives in Maryland, Mia Abea, and which is really important because people who know this history of the Filipinos you know, on display in the human zoos. And there was like Otabenga, who was um, also a kind of a famous figure. He's from Africa, who was also on display in the same World's Fair. He had a very tragic story, actually. But um, people looked at the Filipinos as, you know, real victimized oh. by, by that circumstance. But Mia said to us, well, you know, Filipinos weren't stupid. And she knew this from family stories. They figured out a way, they had agency. They figured out a way to use that experience. And Taro, her grandfather, you know, earned money. Um, he married a woman who was also from Bontoc, who was also put on display. But they had a, a child who was born in the U.S., so was a U.S. citizen. And um, he found a way to, to you know, kind of turn things around. He was able to move back and forth between the U.S. and the Philippines. And they started a, you know, binational American and uh, Filipino based family based here and based in the Philippines that is still, you know, yeah. thriving today. So, um, yeah, so we wanted to start with personal stories. We, we also wanted to uh, show the breadth of yeah. Asian American diversity. So in, even in the first episode, the early period of the 1800s and 1900s, you know, we have Antero, a Filipino story. We also have two South Asian stories. Yeah. Um, Moksad Ali, who was um, a Muslim from the Bengal region of, of India, who and many Muslim men came as traders or ship workers, and they settled, and because of segregation, they settled in African-American communities mm. in Harlem and Detroit. He settled in New Orleans uh, because of the anti-miscegenation laws. They could not marry white women, mm. but they married um, into African-American communities. And he married Ella Blackman, uh, mm. who was African-American woman from the Treme, and uh, Punjabi men who had migrated to the West Coast, you know, often settled in Mexican-American communities and, and agricultural communities and married right. Mexican-American women. Um, so, you know, we wanted to tell those stories, like like set the tone from the very yeah. first episode. 
I, um, even just watching the previews of the show, it's hard to contain emotion because these are tough, tough stories to, sh to even watch. Um, cause there seems to be parallels today and you get yeah. angry because you start asking yourself, what the hell had nothing's changed in a hundred plus years of us being here. And then we'd look the other way and go, what must change now? So that when a documentary is made about 2020 Asian America, that those same themes aren't there. Um, that's, I think some of the emotions that I felt in even just the snippets of the show, because it's telling of the emotions that are embedded in those stories. And for those experiences and emotions to have travel through multi-generational passing down where grandchildren and other descendants are telling the stories with so much conviction. Um, I am, I am so grateful for all of their sacrifice knowingly or unknowingly that they made. Um, and really thankful to you and everybody else and the team for sharing it because it, it needs to be shared. But but I will, will say that it's not one long tale of woe. I mean, I think yeah. the stories are, they're inspiring stories. And um, that that's really the point. It's I mean, it's the drama of these tipping points in American history. And the Asian Americans who live at those tipping points, you know, Jerry Yang says in the series, when your back is against the wall, you have no choice yeah. but to move forward. And you see time and time again, Asian Americans, whether it's, you know, challenges in the courts, mm -hmm. uh, protests on the streets, or, you know, creating art and culture. And we have like all these, you know, filmmakers and writers and performers um, who, we, who we talk to. And, you know, they really, they, they push forward in all these times. So, so I think for Asian American audiences, it's, you know, it's a real point of pride to see these stories. It's like people really, you know, they, it's not so much how Asians became Americans, but how Asians really shaped America. Mm. And, you know, we've been at the center of things. I mean, when I was growing up, I always thought, well, we're, you know, outsiders. We're on the right. periphery. Like we have nothing to do with like the main, you know, story of America. But in fact, you know, in so many ways, we have been, you know, we have fueled the progress. It's, it's that Martin Luther King Jr. saying that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Well, right. Asian Americans have also been on that trajectory. So, and that's something to really be proud of. Right. What is the coolest thing that you learned personally being a part of this project the last two years? The coolest thing? Yeah, well, the most memorable thing that you will, the one thing that you want to remember this period <laughs> by. I think, well, it, it is like all these badass Asian Americans. I mean, like Patsy Mink, who I, I didn't really know her. I knew she had something to do with Title IX. But, um, you know, she went to law school. You see pictures of her, like Patsy Mink, and like 99% of her classmates are white guys and then <laughs> one African-American guy. But she's right in the middle with all these men. Yeah. Um, then she, you know, she's from Hawaii. She went back to Hawaii in, and tried to start a law practice in the 1950s. Of course, you know, 
nobody would hire her. She had her own practice and some of her, um, her clients would pay her in fish. You know, that was the kind of practice she had, but she was really, she wanted to get into politics and she ran for Congress. You know, once Hawaii was a state, she ran for Congress, even though the Democratic Party bosses said, no, we want a guy to run. Don't run. She ran. She lost really badly. Then she ran again and she won. And she was the first woman of color in elected to the U.S. Congress. And when she got in Congress, she was, you know, she was like, had already been a champion for civil rights and women's rights. She introduced the first equal rights bill in Hawaii. It was Hawaii before it was ever introduced in right. the U.S. In the fed, on the federal level. Um, she co-authored Title IX, the Educational Equity Act, right. that, you know, is the basis of all the Me Too cases in, in schools and also um, equal opportunity for women athletes. And it's now named after her. The act is named after her because she was so instrumental. Yeah. So, you know, wow, it's like really, that was really exciting to see stories like that. And, or like, you know, early, like Anna Mae Wong and Sesu Hayakawa, these early silence stars, they had like these really colorful lives. Um, they faced up to the challenges of, you know, misrepresentations on screen by like resisting. I mean, Sesu Hayakawa, who was actually the first screen, silent screen sex symbol with Rudolph Valentino, mm -hmm. I mean, who's a huge star. He was a Japanese immigrant and he got fed up with the way Japanese were represented on screen. And he became a movie mogul, had his own studio for a while. And, you know, I didn't know that. I mean, he had been discovered here in little Tokyo in a Japanese community theater. And then he's like this huge, you know, early Hollywood, this, this huge figure in, in the silent era. I mean, that's just so, and those are just, you know, a couple of stories. And then we have like in the new communities, people like Bia Ten Nguyen mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Mimoa, who's Hmong, who was the uh, first, she was the first Hmong who was elected to a statewide office that was in, in Minnesota. Right. And she actually had been really uh, galvanized by the Vincent Chin case because when she grew up in Wisconsin during the 1980s as a Hmong refugee, you know, she was also attacked right. by, by anti-Asian racism. And then she found out about the Vincent Chin case and the way Asian Americans were coming together to fight for justice. And she thought, you know, it set her on this whole new path of becoming an activist and running for office herself. Yeah. So the, just saying, you know, over these decades, the way, you know, with each successive new community, there's new leaders and new young Asian Americans. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically the story of young Asian Americans. Yeah. Because we're, we tell the stories from when they're, you know, they're in sure. their 20s and 30s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's very inspiring. I, th I think it does two things. It lets people know that whatever they're going through now, whatever they think they're going through now, as challenging as it may be today, that they are certainly not the first person to go through oppression, to go through racism yeah. and violence. And that doesn't excuse any of the stuff that we go through now, but it does put into perspective that the struggle has been going on for a long time and it will continue to and that you're never never ever alone 
Um, our ancestors fought hard and some gave their lives up so that we can even have the audacity to create conversations like the one you and I are having now and to create documentaries that are being aired by PBS and, and so many other cool things. And on the flip side, as you mentioned, it does inspire and create hope because every story that ends with hope and with success and with legacy, those are people that look like us. So not only are you never alone, there's people that look like you as alone as you may feel in your struggle and in your pursuit of happiness and success, whatever that means to you. Heck, somebody that looks like me started with Yahoo. How cool is that? Right? Like it's all, all, all these things that I think we often, many young people feel that there's not enough positive role models that look like us. And I would argue that they do exist and we just need to do a better job as a community, as a collective to then put the spotlight on those people because they do exist today. They've existed for decades and decades and decades. What do you want to be the long lasting legacy of not just this documentary, but all of your work? Well, one thing, everybody involved with this, this collaboration of making Asian Americans for PBS, all the other producers and the folks from the Center for Asian American Media, Jean Chen, um, the episode producers, Leo Chang, Grace Lee, and Gita Ganver, we've all been involved in these movements to, to advocate for Asian American filmmaking. And one thing we want to see is just more stories told by new generations of Asian American filmmakers. And the series has been a part of like being a part of that, that movement. Um, hopefully, you know, young filmmakers will see these stories and they'll make like feature length films or they'll scripted films or, you know, episodic television. They'll just run with the stories and tell new stories, you know, that we didn't know about. Um, Viet Tan Nguyen said in his interview, he said, I'm about the new story. I don't care if, you know, maybe I don't understand it. Um, you know, maybe I don't agree with it, but that's what's important. It's the new story. It's inspiring, um, being allowed. Um, a lot of us, I think, grew up in permission driven entities where we didn't do things because we didn't think we we're allowed to. Um, I certainly didn't think that. I would one day host a podcast specifically telling our story um, and to finally realize two things. One, I don't need anybody's permission. And two, if not me, then whom? And a lot of, after many, many years of imposter syndrome, negative self-talk, doubting, and all that, once you turn on the mic and once you start speaking, all of that goes away. And it's just going back to the often hard to admit, but once you get it, that every story matters and that you don't know what your words and your work will mean to some kid somewhere, heck, even some adult somewhere that now finally feels free and inspired to truly be them in a world where sometimes being us is penalized. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the thank show. You. Uh, I, I'm so, so, so excited to watch. Um, yes, everybody's staying home. That's the downside. The upside is everybody's home. Yeah. So no excuse to watch audience. it. Yeah. Right. Uh, parents, if you don't know what channel, it's the channel we watch Daniel Tiger on in the mornings. 
um, go, go on PBS, um, share it with your friends. And much, much, much more importantly than asking your Asian American friends to watch it, please ask your non-Asian American friends to watch it. This is American history. This is American history that we were never taught in schools and that unfortunately probably will not be taught in schools at the level that it should be. It's fun. It's storytelling. It's connective. And you will definitely smile, maybe cry, but walk away with a deeper appreciation of where we come from. Um, Renee, uh, we end the show at the Asian Americans in the same way, um, every single show, and it is going back to the name of the show. Uh, the Asian Americans for me is a love letter to us and from us and really for us, a conversation that we never knew we wish we had or that we just need more of. So um, help us close out the show and share something that you want to share with the uh, Asian American community. And so I will start the letter. And if you could finish, uh, help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, take pride in your story and watch it May 11th and 12th, 8 p.m. 7 Central Time on PBS. Thank you so much. And for all the creators out there who are fearful of doing something, Renee's here because I sent her a DM on Instagram 48 hours ago. People respond. People want to help. People want to help you share your stories. So take it from me, take it from Renee, and for all of us who have dedicated at least a part of our lives to telling your story, my story, our story, do it. You don't need anybody's permission, and somebody's life will change because of it. Renee, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Jerry. Bye, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Renee, for making time. No joke. I sent her an Instagram DM a few days ago. She responded, and we recorded on a Saturday. She made time for me. She made time for the show. But she made time for Asian America because the work matters. The stories matter. And we want as many people as possible to watch it. Um, so, again, please watch the show tonight. Um, include us and tag us if you want to join in the conversation at hashtag Asian and PBS. And you can tag the Asian Americans wherever you're watching it. We'd love to stay connected with you really experience it together. Follow us and like us on Instagram and on Facebook. Share this episode with a friend. Come on to show yourself. Would love to learn your story and to share it with our audience. So thanks again so much. PBS Tonight, 8 p.m., Asian Americans. It's about time. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. Stay happy. Stay sane. Keep representing. Keep sharing our stories. This has been your host, Jerry Wan. I'll see you next time.